Hey Siri, what are your hottest takes? Nando's is overrated, it's just chicken, I could cook it at home, they even sell the sauce in testers. Like, I could literally make that myself. So why would I pay like 20 quid for basically chicken and shit? Who would've thought? Not me. Cats are better than dogs. Seriously. Just don't at me on that one. Why would I want to follow you around a park picking up your litter that's not fun for anyone? Crocs are actually phenomenally fashionable, as well as being intensely comfortable. Even if you disagree that they are fashionable, you should agree that they should be. Heaven, hell and other hot takes. Now, this is, as um, Ellie says, it's the last in our series, Heaven, Hell and Other Hot Takes. And what we've been saying about this is that there are certain things in Scripture, in the Bible, there's certain things that Christians believe which are complex, which are challenging, which are controversial in some ways. And when we looked at the very beginning, we quoted something that Paul said to Greek Christians in the early church. He says, if you think differently, it's okay, God will make clear to you, just let's live up to what we've already attained. In other words, it's okay to think differently. As long as you live differently, as long as you live according to the things that you know, we know that we should forgive one another. We know that we should love. We know that we should serve and love the poor. So let's live up to that. You can think differently about the other things. But you might say, well, if you can think differently about those things, then why are we bringing them up? Why not just let them lie? And the reason that we take subjects like hell, which is what we're doing tonight, is that it's important that you're fully convinced that the good news really is good news. Because if you don't think that the good news of Jesus Christ is insanely, amazingly good great plot, great music, great direction, is difficult for me because it's kind of, it just puts a dampener on things because of the whole Kevin Spacey thing. And so it's something that I might enjoy myself, but it's not something that I feel like I would want to encourage others to get involved. And if you as a Christian don't believe that the good news is fully good, if you think actually there's parts of it I'm not so sure about, or there's parts of it that actually, yeah, they do sound a little bit ugly, but it's, it's not like you think. It's going to put a dampener on your desire to tell other people about Jesus. And if you're here or you're watching and you're not a believer, then this subject, subjects like hell, God's judgment, uh, destruction, death, damnation, all of that stuff, that's precisely the reason you don't believe in God or you don't want to believe in God. Because Christians can tell you about a God of love and how God's for you. But when you think that this God has a gun to your head and saying, believe in me, otherwise I'll send you to hell.
subjects with the proviso that it's okay to think differently. Now, tonight, I'm going to give you my view of hell. You don't have to agree with it. It's not the official metro view on hell. It's just my view on hell. It happens to be the correct one, uh, but you can believe what you want to believe. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we make decisions, how we understand Scripture, (laughs) how we uh, actually get through this. Sorry, I just got this rustling of crisp packets in my ear. Um, uh, Where was I? Yes, we were talking last week with Sam that when you come to the Bible, you have to read it as it was written. Everyone say, read it as it was written. written to say? What were the writers trying to get across? But also, anything that does not look like Jesus needs to be examined again, because Jesus says, all of Scripture is about me. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Logos, the Word made flesh. And any word in Scripture that does not look like Jesus needs to be re-examined. That Jesus says, I am the word. So we look to the Bible, we read the Bible, and it's got to look like Jesus. This is what happens when we read scripture. It's this um, funky sunglasses scenario, which is what I uh, like to call it. Here, ladies and gentlemen, I have got my funky sunglasses. What do you think? Okay, now, I know that they make me look great, uh, they're actually my daughter. Tint. But if you could see what I see when I put these red funky sunglasses on, everyone is red. I mean, it just looks crazy. So I'm looking at a white wall. It's now a red wall. I'm looking at my wife. She's in front of me. She's now bathed in a sickly hellish red glow. Everything, even my hands in front of me, they look red. Not because they are red, not because the wall is red, not because Kate is red, but because I am wearing red sunglasses. These funky glasses, they put a filter over how I perceive the world. We all have sunglasses. We all have funky sunglasses that we're wearing. They're about our background our prejudices, our biases. They're about the cultural stories that we have been told. They're about the things that we don't even realize that color the way that we perceive things. And so you can read the Bible and suddenly you realize you're seeing scripture but through your own lens. And so what we're going to try and do tonight is we're going to try and remove these sunglasses. We're going to look at what the sunglasses are. What are the assumptions that we bring to the table that make us look at Scripture in a particular way? And what can we do about that? So we're going to look at the subject of hell, but honestly, I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow, in-depth look at it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple of ways, some examples in which we look at Scripture and then find out how to come to our own conclusions. So you read it as it's written, and you read it to find Jesus. Good? Apart from nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. So here's a few examples. Uh, Matthew is the one that really likes to record all Jesus' hell 
talk. So in, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 13, Jesus says, he talks. Angels, the son of man will do this. Jesus will do this. And they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weed. I'm the one that's actually going to send out my angels to do this. And so we have this feeling that Jesus is the one that saves us and rescues us. But Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be the one that sends out his angels. So what's going on there? Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is speaking and he's speaking to his followers. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two. So this whole thing about hell, it's not something that we can just gloss. You cannot be a follower of Jesus without confronting what Jesus says about hell. He says, hell is something that should cause us pause. You should be not worried about what people can do to you because they can only kill the body. But actually, God can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says that there's coming a time at the very end of all reality where he will send out his angels and everyone that has done evil. that we've got, is sunglass a word or is it, did I make that up? Sunglasses. First funky sunglasses is our, uh, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. We have this idea that um, Jesus said, if you are evil, and we're all evil, if you do wrong, is forever and ever and ever and ever that it is eternal that it is eternal fire eternal punishment eternal torture now when we talk about hell and just for those of you that are not sure about faith and you're thinking to your friend why did you bring me here this is awful um, let me just explain the traditional view of hell in Christian circles is conscious eternal torment that those who do wrong, that those who are not uh, putting themselves in God's forgiving arms actually endure eternal conscious torment. Now, I say the traditional view. Actually, it's only been traditional from about the 5th century. Before then, the early church had a different view of things, which is what we're going to get to later on. But you've got to look at the Bible. You've got to look and read it as it is written. 
And when we look at that word eternal, we have to ask ourselves, well, how does the Bible use that word? Because eternal can mean different things in different contexts. It can mean something that is always going on. So if you are in punishment, if you suffer hell, does that mean that you eternally are in hell? What does it mean? The writer to the Hebrews is one person that really digs in on Scripture. So in chapter 6, the writer to the Hebrews says, look, we don't want to go over all the old basic stuff. It says this, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. judgment. In other words, in Hebrews, the writer, the person that wrote that book is saying eternal judgment, hell, eternal judgment. It's just one of the basic foundational beliefs of scripture, along with the resurrection of the body, along with baptism, along with laying hands on people for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be healed. These are basic things. And alongside these basic things, eternal judgment. It's like the Hebrew writer is saying, this is just Christianity part one. It's the obvious, basic, simple, foundational things. Eternal judgment. But you ask yourself, am I wearing sunglasses here? Am I seeing and reading into this word eternal, things that the writer does not intend? So you look, you flip the book forward from Hebrews chapter 6 to Hebrews chapter 9. And now he starts, or she, starts to talk about what Jesus has done as the high priest. Hebrews 9 says this, He, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. Everyone say, eternal redemption. So you've got two things. On the one hand, you've got eternal judgment. And on the other hand, you've got eternal redemption. Now, when he says eternal redemption, the word redemption just means to buy back. Something that has been lost is being bought back. So if I walk and I get into a hardship, I fall on hard times, maybe I uh, sell something. I take my ring, my wedding ring, which is fabulously worth a lot of money. And I take it to a pawn shop. And uh, I, I give that ring to the pawnbroker, and they give me some money in exchange for that. That is now the redemption price. If I want to get my ring back, I need to pay that, and probably there's a mark on top. To redeem the ring, I go back to the shop, and I pay again over the odds. I get my ring back. The ring has now been redeemed, and I have it. The Bible says what Jesus has done for us, the price, the penalty that we should pay because we are broken, because we have messed up, because we have let ourselves down, let other people down, let God down, that price, that penalty, that fine, that uh, thing that we have to pay, Jesus has paid it. He's redeemed us. We don't belong to the powers of death and hell any longer. He's redeemed us. And so the Hebrew writer says, Eternal, eternal redemption. 
Now, this does not mean that Jesus is eternally dying on the cross. Jesus redeemed me with his own blood that he shed on the cross. But Jesus is not continuously, continually, forever and ever. Every moment, every day, every week, every month, every year, for eternity. He's not on the cross redeeming me and redeeming me and redeeming me. His redemption is once and for all. Once he's done it, it's done eternally. Once he's redeemed me, I am redeemed eternally. I can never be brought back under the slavery and dominion of evil, sin, and death. I am eternally redeemed. Actually, when Scripture talks about what happens to those who are not redeemed, those of us that are still in our sin, who refuse to turn to Christ, he says it's a bit like this. So Peter writes to the early church, And he talks about what God did in the Old Testament. He says this. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. And made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In other words, Peter says, this is what's going to happen. It's not something to be happy or joyful about. This is a tragedy. But what's going to happen to people... Uh, At the end of time, there will be judgment. Because there's something in us that says, when wickedness and evil is committed, there should be a reckoning. There should be justice in the universe. And so we want Hitler to be held to account. We want the pedophile to answer for their crimes. We want the people that got away for it to actually face the music at some point. And the Bible says it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged those cities for their wickedness, their their disregard for the care of the poor, their sexual violence. God judges them and they are burnt to ashes. It's done. It's over. There's no more Sodom. There's no more Gomorrah. They're eternally judged. But it's a one-off thing that has eternal consequence. And so this is where we get to with the first sunglasses. Hell is eternal in consequence, not duration. Hell is eternal, yes, but it's eternal in consequence, not duration. In other words, the effect of hell, the effect of judgment upon human beings is it's forever. Once it's done, it is done. It is irrevocable. It is something which you cannot come back from. It is final, complete, and eternally done. But it's not that the duration lasts forever and ever and ever. It's that the consequences, just like I am redeemed eternally, but it's a one-off act that Jesus does on the cross. So hell is a one-off thing that has eternal ramifications. Okay, (laughs) second glasses. I just like putting these on. (laughs) Second glasses are these. Humans are eternal. Human beings are eternal. These are glasses that a lot of us have. In fact, I can remember, and I've got to come clean here, when I think about how, and a number of issues in scripture, uh, my views on different things have changed over the years, and probably they will still change, because right now we're talking about things that are just outside of our comprehension. It's like a goldfish trying to understand a PlayStation. It's just you do your best, but it's way above your pay grade. And so I've changed my mind on things. But I can remember I was stuck for such a long time because I thought, well, humans are eternal. You know, you you live forever. The, The soul 
is immortal. And God can't force you to become a Christian. You have free will. And if he can't force you to be with him in heaven, if he can't push you to be with him in heaven, then you've got to be somewhere. And that's what hell is. And maybe it's not, uh, you know, we, we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. It's clearly not great. But, but maybe it's, I don't know, maybe you're not quite human. I, I, I just don't know. But I couldn't get over this thing. Humans are immortal. But I think... Those are funky sunglasses. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Because, again, Paul speaks to Timothy, and he says this, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Paul says, only God is immortal. And it might surprise you to know that actually for hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians have had the view that human beings aren't intrinsically immortal. That's why the Bible talks about Adam and Eve and then that you know, amazing uh, Genesis picture of humanity, that they're in paradise, but there's a tree of life as well as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when human beings reject God, they are barred from the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. The humans were intrinsically immortal. It was um, somewhere around 15, well, just the beginning of the 1500s, that the Pope at the time, and this is when the Reformation is happening, but the Pope, Pope Leo, he actually produced a decree, a papal decree, saying the human soul is immortal. Now, Martin Luther, who was the great reformer who starts the, the Protestant church, this was one of the things he railed against. He, he banged it to the nails of the door. He absolutely he wrote against it. In one point, he said, these are my problems with what the Pope is saying. And then he includes it. He says, he says all these things, and he says that the soul is immortal. I've got a problem with this, and all these endless monstrosities in the Roman dunghill of Decretals. Uh, again, apologies uh, to our Catholic friends, brothers and sisters. Uh, we do love our Catholic brothers and sisters. My children went to Catholic school. We do genuinely love. But there is a difference of opinion. These Decretals, these papal decrees, Martin Luther says, that's not right. William Tyndale, who was the first person to translate the Bible into English, he said, these are pagan philosophies, and they're getting into the church. They're getting into Christendom, and they're not right, because only God is immortal. It's only when you have a human soul that cannot be destroyed that you have an issue where hell has to remain eternal. But the Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible says only God is immortal, and that is just the kind of orthodox Christian view for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it just, as soon as they change it, suddenly it goes viral, it goes viral in the Middle Ages. And before you know it, we now have this kind of thing of, yeah, the immortal soul, the eternal flame, that spark within a human being that cannot be extinguished. But when Jesus talked about eternal life, he said, it's all about what I give you. John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them, everyone say give them. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
In other words, Jesus says, eternal life is a gift. I'm the good shepherd and I give this gift to my sheep so that they will never perish. Without this gift, you will perish. We've been singing that song. We've sung it for the last few weeks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Because without believing in Jesus, that's what happens. We perish. We die. Forget Hitler. Forget the pedophile. Philip Gennardo is no great shakes either. I may not have done the major sins that grab headlines, but I know that there's a rottenness in my core. I know that there are things I am deeply ashamed and embarrassed about. I know that I don't deserve mercy. I do deserve to make an account for what I have done. And when Paul speaks to the church, he writes to the Romans and he says, for the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, the end result of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is where we get to with our second set of sunglasses. Humans are eternal by gift, not nature. We can be eternal, but it's by gift, it's not by nature. The Bible, as far as I read it, never says that human beings are intrinsically eternal. It says only God is eternal. In him we live and move and breathe and have our being. It's God that holds the atoms of my body and keeps them from flying apart into nothingness. It's God that gives me breath in my lungs. It's his breath in my lungs that allows me to live. It's he that sustains me, that upholds me, that keeps me in existence. He's gracious to me. And the good news is truly good news because God says, even though you sin, even though you fail, even though you fall, even though you deserve judgment, you deserve to account for what you've done. He says, I give you eternal life. It's a gift. You just have to trust in me. You just have to come back into relationship with me. Which is why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross who had done bad things. He speaks to the other thief who's just mocking Jesus. And he says, don't say those things. This man has done no wrong, but we deserve what we're getting. He's literally nailed to a slab of wood. And he's saying, I deserve this. I absolutely deserve this. And Jesus says, you do. You do deserve it. But that simple faith that you've put in me means that I can give you eternal life. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And all that joy and wonder and glory and majesty and delight that we've talked about with heaven, with the resurrection of the body, with Jesus coming and bringing a new heaven and a new earth of restoring all things, we get to have it. And that's why the good news is good news. Because we get to live forever. Hell is something that is the natural consequence of living a life that is broken, wrong, and hurts others. It's just destruction, and it's death. It's Sodom, and it's Gomorrah. It's fire, and it's justice, and it's over. 
And the Bible says in the Psalms, it says the, the, the wicked, they'll just disappear like the mist, like, like grass fades. And you'll look for them and you'll see them no more. When we read the Bible as it's written, we see actually the way that it uses words gives us a better understanding of what it's truly trying to say. But even better, when we read it as we look to find Jesus, then that saves us from getting tripped up by things that would otherwise hurt us or harm us in Scripture. Again, like Sam said last week, if Jesus is my lens, if Jesus is my sunglasses, then all I see in Scripture is God's love expressed through Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm going to make all things new. And actually, an eternity of torment and distress and regret is simply incompatible with the victory of God in Christ Jesus. It's like a bodge builder building your dream house. You have your dream house and the build says, here it is, the bathroom, the bedrooms, the living rooms, but don't go down into the basement because there's bare wires and snakes and uh, it's all flooded and it's dank. And, but apart from that, it's a dream house. You wouldn't say that's a dream house. You would say that is a bodge job. You'd say that is something that should not be. I cannot enjoy my house. And I believe that when Jesus says, I will make all things new, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more dying. I believe that's for all of reality, all of the cosmos, all of created order. I don't believe that there will be some part of it that Jesus says, yeah, yeah, we don't talk about that place. We don't worry about that. That's the basement. It's a bag of snakes. No, I believe that Jesus' victory is so total. That God's love is so complete. You know, when the Bible talks about God in certain places, it says, our God is a consuming fire. And if I am not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that when I see God, I am, I am unable to stand. I'm consumed. And yet God graciously offers me a free gift of eternal life. I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't look for it. I was oblivious. But I got down on my knees one day and I said, Jesus, I want your life in my life. Because I recognize I'm not the person that I want to be. And the reason that we give our lives to Jesus is not because we are frightened of the consequences. It's because we want to be saved from them. Without Jesus, there is nothing for me. There is no life. If you're here tonight, or if you're watching online, if you don't know Jesus, there's nothing for you but what you know you deserve. Just what happens with all humanity. We all know that death is a reality. The Bible talks about a day of justice, a day where I have to stand before God, make an account of my life. And I know that right now, without Christ, I have no leg to stand on. No amount of religion, no amount of good intention, no amount of philosophy can get me out of that hole. Because I deserve everything coming to me. Because I'm a hypocrite, and so are you. But Jesus says, I love you so much, I will go to hell for you. I will rip that place down. And I will use it to burn up evil and burn up suffering and burn up wrong. 
And you have no business being anywhere near there because my sheep know me, they follow me, they hear my voice. I give them eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And it is available for you, and it is available for you. It's available for all who call on the name of the Lord. After that, outside of that, I don't know. You say, Philip, what about this? What about that? What about this scenario? I don't know. Goldfish, PlayStation. I do know that God is loving. I do know that Jesus is gracious. I do know that God gave everything. That Jesus hung and bled and died. That Jesus conquered sin and death. That Jesus destroyed everything that stands in the way of my redemption. That he went and he paid everything everything to buy me back and to bring me back into relationship with God. And when we go to We the Curious next week, we don't do it because we have a religious tradition. We don't do it because that's just what we do and we just mindlessly go through the motions. We do it because we're super nuclear powered with a passion to share the good news of Jesus with anybody and everybody that we possibly can. We want to be a light on a hill. We want to be a, a witness to Jesus. We want to be people, men, women, that say God is good. Embrace his love. Embrace his grace. We will do everything that we can to make space. We'll have a five, we'll have a seven, and then in the future we'll have a nine and an 11, and we'll have pop-ups. You know pop-ups? They will be back. They will be back, but in a resurrection body kind of way, where they are transformed into something so much more powerful. This was just a dress, it wasn't even a dress rehearsal, this was a table read-through. One day we're going to have things all over the city, where there will be little lights, where there will be activities. Reaching out to communities, serving those that are vulnerable and in need. Because we believe the good news of God is for everybody. God so loved the world, he gave everything for you. We're going to pray. Once again, I'm going to invite you, if you would like to, to commit and dedicate your life to Jesus. It may be uh, the hundredth time that you've done this. Or maybe the very first time that you've ever consciously ask Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you, to fill you with his eternal life that never dies. I don't fear judgment, not because I'm perfect, but because Jesus has won me over. So here's our big idea. Hell and judgment are real, but the good news is that God loves us so much that he gave everything so that in Christ, we could be saved from death and given the gift of eternal life. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer. Again, this is a prayer that we pray when we invite Jesus to come into our lives. So here in Studio Church, in pop-ups, watching at home, uh, listening uh, online, Spotify, wherever you are, you can just pray this prayer with me. Pray it along with me. I'll give you the words nice. Uh, a little bit at a time, you can just echo them in your own heart, make them your own. It's a simple A, B, C. I admit that I need Jesus. I've messed up. I believe that God loves me so much that he came and died for me and rose again. And C, I commit my life to Jesus. You don't have to understand 
everything. I don't understand everything. But you know enough to know that you want to respond to Jesus. So pray this prayer with me. Dear God, you know my life. You know the mistakes I've made. You know the wrong paths I've taken. But right now I ask you to forgive me. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I don't understand everything. But I believe that you love me. I believe that you came for me, died, rose again. And I want your life in my life. I give you my life right now and ask you to help me live for you. I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Just while people have got their eyes closed, uh, wherever you are, pop-ups here in the studio, or even at home, if you prayed that prayer, I'd like to pray for you right now. So just so I know who I'm praying for, I want you to put your hand up. It might be the first time you've done this, it might be the hundredth time. But if you prayed that prayer, thank you. You could put your hands up. Brilliant. Just keep your hands up for a second. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, you can put your hands down, but maybe just have them held uh, palm facing the sky. Father, I want to pray for every single individual. Lord, wherever they are, whenever they are, that's prayed this prayer with me right now. I pray in Jesus' name that you would enter their lives, that you would rekindle the light of life within them. I pray, Jesus, that you forgive them and that you enter. You say that you, you stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears and opens, then you'll come in and then you'll eat with them. And I pray that you would commune with each of these. I pray that you'd fill them with your spirit right now. I pray that they would know that they've entered from death into life. I pray that you would bless them beyond their ability to comprehend it. And I pray that they would know that they have life eternal, the free gift of God, in Jesus' name. Amen.